Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, yeah. apparently, my wife yes, that's me. is going to admit to something. Well, it's, it's nothing. Nothing. It's, it's a confession. Nothing. No, it's a bit of it's a confession. Okay, it's not a big thing. It's but just, sometimes I have to check out bands, right? Some I know very well, and, mm-hmm. and others not at all. Right. And this week, I learned something. Okay, tell the people what you learned. About myself? <laughs> oh, about the thing. Yes, okay. Oh, yeah. um, I learned I like Rush. <laughs> It's actually pretty good. Yeah, 2112 is a fucking great album. They have great music, and I can listen to it for hours. I haven't combed my hair since. You know, it's interesting when I I actually had to text a friend of mine a couple of years ago when I finally got Rush, because he used to tell me in college all the time, like, dude, Rush is the best fucking band. Uh, And so I had to text him like, okay, dude, I listen to 2112. I get it now. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) And he didn't text back for a long time because I gave him so much shit about Rush. Uh, But welcome to No Dogs in Space, ladies and gentlemen. Newly rushed. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And we are on to the next series. Oh, good, good. Finally. It's only been five months. (laughs) And by the way, thank you so much for your patience. There were a a bunch of things that that happened. Unfortunate occurrences. Yes. Catastrophic things that happened. (laughs) Um, Nothing that terrible, but it was was still enough to to keep us from. And I'm holding us back still more. Okay, let's start. (laughs) Let's start now. Sorry. Okay. Now, I know at the end of our last series, we said that we were going to do a different band than the one that we're going to do today. You've seen the title. You know what band we're doing but after we did our research and even wrote a first draft for that first episode we realized that jonathan richmond just wasn't the right fit for our show that's right we love jonathan richmond and the modern lovers huge huge fans and we will do him sometime soon it just didn't feel right with us yeah it didn't feel right because i just don't think we were quite ready to let go of punk all the way that's true so much like the band we switched to we said fuck it we're gonna do what we want for as long as we do this podcast, we promise that that is exactly what we're going to do from here on out. Exactly. You hear that last podcast network president? <laughs> we're going to do what we want to fucking do whenever we fucking want to do it. Are you talking to me? 
it's a good thing you're here because I got to let you know that we're going to just do what, whatever we want to do instead of doing things like we should do yeah, or, exactly. it's in, you know, it's next in line or whatever. It's like, no, fuck it. Just do it because we feel it because we want to do it. Goddamn right. Now, today's band certainly counted punk as one of their influences, but it was one of many influences that ran from classic rock to prog to blues. And those influences created songs that were fueled by frustration and half-hearted rebellion. And those songs were combined with frequent substance abuse, which could be both admittedly entertaining and devastatingly sad. You put that together, but then all we hear is admittedly entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) But it is devastatingly sad. At times, yeah. In effect, there was no calculation with this band. No hang-ups about what they should or should not be. Nor was there any of the self-serious posturing that dogged a lot of alternative bands in the 80s. And interestingly, that uh, point of view came from one of the members of R.E.M., a band (laughs) that took themselves very seriously in the 80s. Well, that's the thing. It takes one to know one. And I do feel like they're very self-aware. <laughs> yes. Well, instead, this band was so afraid of appearing as if they were taking anything seriously that they shot themselves in the foot over and over again. But they still succeeded in putting out some of the best alternative albums of the 80s in spite of themselves. Now, some people look at this band's catalog as a celebration of underachievement. And that's understandable, considering how the band itself took every opportunity to brag that there wasn't a single driver's license or high school diploma between them. They could really live off the grid. Totally. <laughs> they could prob- They could have. But instead, we have this. Exactly. Which I'm actually I'm glad that they did this, actually, Very, in the end. <laughs> yeah, it's glad that they, they did not drop out of society. Thus spoke Zarathustra. <laughs> like, that's what I'm thinking. Like, they're just coming down from a mountain and it's like, okay, I'm ready to write this book. <laughs> I think he was a fake guy, though. I don't think he was real. Right. Ironically, though, their raw translation of their own underachievement was itself an achievement. They created songs that were far more insightful, yet still just as immature as the no-future punk that partly inspired them in the first place. Now, this combination of conflicting viewpoints had a lot to do with the fact that they're from Minnesota. Because if any region knows how to bare their soul, then cover it up with a joke, a drink, or a complete denial that they'd ever done it in the first place... It's the Midwest. You should be proud. (laughs) Why should I be proud? I'm talking to the Midwest. Ah. (laughs) I'm talking into a microphone. Yes, yes. (laughs) But with each album this band released, their music matured and grew, all while their personalities and professional attitudes stayed in a kind of arrested development. However, it is possible that this contradiction was the secret ingredient to everything, because without that juvenile connection, their songs and performances wouldn't have had anywhere near the same impact. They were vulnerable without being overly sensitive. Tough, but not too cocky. Unhinged, but not, with some very notable exceptions, dangerous. Put simply, when it comes to articulating the adolescent feelings that none of us ever truly leaves behind, nobody did it better than The Replacements.
39 years old. That, that song still hits as hard as it did when I was fucking 18 when I first heard that on KTXT 88.1 <laughs> FM. Oh, man. Yeah. I want my college radio show back so bad. I, I know that. I know you do. I know you're trying to replace this show with that, but it won't happen. I know. I know. Well, what what are our sources for this week? For the, Well, for this week and for the weeks to come. Well, okay. Well, we have for our sources for part one, for mm-hmm. sure. And these are, uh, well, we're going to start with our main source, Trouble Boys, the true story of the replacements by Bob Mayer. Really great, super well-researched book. Yeah, really fucking good. If you want to know what fucking Bob Stinson's great-grandparents did for a living, that's, and it's necessary. It makes sense. It's in, important, yeah, actually. It's, <laughs> it's like very important, and it makes sense within the narrative. So it's definitely recommended for a music bio. Yes, exactly. And then there's Complicated Fun by Sin Collins. Really great book, uh, oral history book about the the Twin Cities music scene from the 70s and going up. Really, really fantastic. Yeah, really and, solid stuff. And then there's a Jay's Longhorn documentary that I just checked out uh, recently this week. It was really good. Uh, it just, it, I just found it. I found it online, so you could probably order it on Amazon or whatever crap you, you know, you watch your thing on. And then there's a Replacements Bible, which you could find online. Just Google it. I, I found it. It's a PDF. It's got hundreds of pages. So thank you, Replacements fans who put this together at one point or another, maybe 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, really great stuff. Uh, pretty much a huge overview of the history of the Replacements. Yeah. And the uh, chapter of Our Band Could Be Your Life uh, by Michael Azarad. That's where I first heard the Replacement story. Uh, we took a couple of details from that, even though there are, I hear a couple of details in that are erroneous. Uh, <laughs> but I did take some details from that. And it's just great. Uh, it's just a really good introduction to the band's story uh, at large, as many of the chapters are in that book. I fucking love that book so fucking much. Yeah, and I got to talk to Liz Winstead, uh, a veteran comic and Minnesota native who was super cool and took some time to talk to me about, you know, the, the scene and the band. She knew the replacements as, as a comic going up around at the, around the same time as they did. So that was really cool to just to get like some insider knowledge on what was going on back then. Yeah. So without further ado, let's tell the story of Minnesota's own replacements, starting with the most suburban member of the band, lead singer and principal songwriter, Paul Westerberg. Yes. Paul Westerberg representing South Minneapolis. Yeah. Is that any different from North Minneapolis? Yes, actually it is. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. Good, good. All right. So, but, but first we're going to, we're going to talk mostly about South Minneapolis right now. All right. Paul, he was born and raised there in a the middle class Irish Catholic part of town, Painfully ordinary is what Paul would call it, you know, very suburban or very conventional American. Uh, his family, not not Paul. No, 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 no. 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 He's a whole other thing. <laughs> He's great, though. Yeah. And then Paul's dad, Hal Westerberg, he was a World War II veteran who stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. Well, actually, he came on a later boat, but it was still really, really bad. It was no yeah. picnic. No, it was no right? picnic at all. No. He had to get like dog tags from all the carcasses, like yeah. from the beach. So. My God, I mean, yeah, I mean, Paul Paul Westerberg's background, like, it, it is painfully ordinary, but it's like novelistically ordinary. It's unbelievably American. Yeah, it really is. And when Hal came back as a war hero, he got married and settled down. He had five kids, Paul being one of them. He was fourth out of five kids. And then Hal went to work as a Cadillac salesman for the rest of his life. (laughs) But his passion, his burning passion was to be a professional golfer. And this is where it comes in. It's like a novel, ordinary type shit. But but he was very good. He was not just ordinary. (laughs) He was amazing. He once hit a hole in one in 1978. Not many people could do that. That's true. I don't even know if Bob Barker's ever done that. I don't know many golfers. Anyway. Bob Barker's not even a fucking, he just likes golfing. Okay. (laughs) Well, he's dead now. (laughs) And uh, rest in peace. Rest in peace, of course. Sure, whatever. Anyway, so how... Fuck you, Bob. Honestly. Anyway, so 
So Hal Westerberg, uh, he had this burning, burning desire to be a professional golfer. And it didn't happen because it was a whole have your family, have your 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 house, your your dog, your your car, whatever. And sometimes conventional America is just not about following your dream. Well, and it was also like what what I read it was that his wife was also like, "Why can't we have a bigger house, Hal? Why we gotta live in this dump, Hal?" <laughs> hey, don't talk to Mary Lou like that. <laughs> She's a wonderful woman, a wonderful woman. It was the picture that Paul had painted. But that is true. She did say that. Um, so Hal, you know, Paul's dad, he drank scotch every night, and he just dreamt about golfing. And his mom, Mary Lou, the wonderful Mary Lou. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, interesting thing. I don't know why I'm throwing this in here. Once stated baseball great Ted Williams. Oh, wow. One of the best hitters of all time. (laughs) Wonderful. It doesn't get any more American family than this. It really doesn't. That was the baseball stat you were warning me about that was coming. Yes. I give give Marcus like hints, like like it's like one of those, like, you know, when we come back from a commercial thing, like this is going to be a little bit of trivia. You're going to find out a little nugget of truth because he doesn't know what I'm about to say like 90% of the time. Yeah. The other night she was like, Greatest hitter of all time. Just a bit of a hint for you. What's coming up? <laughs> Greatest hitter of all time. Like it's a Jeopardy clue or something. <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? All right. So Paul was raised in a fairly happy home, at least on the outside. Yeah. On the inside, there's anxiety and depression and alcoholism, but that's like the best you can hope for sometimes. Yeah. And you know what? I take that back. That's not just American. That's just family. Yeah, there really is. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> so Paul grew up in what I consider fairly normal, and he mentions that one time when he was a kid, he fell off a swinging rope and hit his head so hard he cut his head open, which made him bad at math and reading. Well, but really, he's dyslexic. Yeah. <laughs> he was just, I think he's just trying to be funny. Yeah. And his songwriting is very, it actually brings some uniqueness to it. So so I, I find that as another learning disability person, I find it very cool and very interesting. Too. Yeah, you're an ADHD person. Yes, yeah. I am. <laughs> <laughs> just yes. To, yeah, just to make sure everybody's on the same page here. Oh, we know, we know. <laughs> now, like many kids, both blessed and cursed to be amongst the youngest of a large brood, Paul was able to capitalize on the music taste of his older siblings, and he distinctly remembered seeing his sisters go weak in the knees while watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Man, that fucking performance really created a whole bunch of bullshit. It I know. Really did. It really <laughs> did. I think this is the ninth or tenth time over the course of this entire podcast that we've mentioned that fucking Ed Sullivan performance. Maybe they were as big as Jesus. They're very good. <laughs> That's what we always say oh, here on yeah. No Dogs in Space. The Beatles were very good. No, they are very, very good. <laughs> well, Paul also bought his first guitar from his big sister for 10 bucks, a cheap acoustic harmony sovereign that his sister probably wasn't even using, but still made him pay for anyway. <laughs> if you haven't figured out, I am also the youngest of a large brood. It's a typical younger brother thing to say. <laughs> I know, because I'm an older sister. That's right. Regardless, Paul's brother... And had, a younger sister. And, 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 sorry, yeah, you're the middle child. Yes. I know. We have our own problems. <laughs> but regardless, Paul's brother had friends who were musicians. And those friends got Paul started, teaching him everything from Zeppelin to bluegrass. By 1972, Paul was buying his own records and no longer had to depend on AM radio or the discarded jukebox 45s that came from a bowling alley owned by his friend's stepfather. That's a Midwest shit right there. Cool. Now, Paul started with Moody Blues Records to impress his sisters, but he soon moved on to an album that me and Carolina have both fucking fallen in love with since we began researching this episode. It's not Rush. It's (laughs) It's also Rush, but then this. Yeah. That album was Never a Dull Moment by the husky-voiced Rod Stewart. 
nothing to do on this hot afternoon but to settle down and write your line. I've been meaning to phone you, but for minutes, and it's been a very long time. You wear it well, a little old-fashioned, but that's all. that up and that's Paul Westerberg. Yeah. And Name Checks Minnesota as well. Hey, in the first verse. Look at that. Yeah. Uh, that uh, that album really is never a dull moment. It's really fucking good. Yeah. Uh, give Rod Stewart another chance. It goes far beyond if you think I'm sexy. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now while Paul had certainly grown up in a somewhat stable environment his adolescent years were full of turmoil and like all of the replacements he found solace in alcohol. Going to be talking about drinking A lot in this series. Yes. So let's start. (laughs) Paul said that his first drink came after his older sisters dared him to drink a glass of vodka. But Paul found that after he drank, his baseline anxiety disappeared. Soon after, Westerberg, getting a little bit more dramatic, tried overdosing on narcotic samples stored at his house by one of his sisters who was working as a nurse's aide. I wouldn't call it getting a little dramatic. (laughs) Well, he, even he himself says that it was a little dramatic. It was a cry for help. Oh, it wasn't. Gotcha. A, it wasn't a true attempt. He said his most vivid memory from the OD was his father shoving a banana in his face, saying, "Eat this, goddammit!" Oh my god. Yeah. It's still pretty dramatic, I guess. But <laughs> I think there's some real issues there. Some real anxiety issues, like deep in. Uh, actually, not really that deep in there. It's it's really brimming from everywhere. It's pretty, eating a banana. Yeah. <laughs> but what always brought Paul back to the center was music. And in 1975, he went to the Minneapolis Auditorium and saw the last live performance of a band that featured the aforementioned Rod Stewart as lead singer, The Faces. Yes! Oh my God, it's amazing. (laughs) No, I I can't even begin to tell you. Paul, a high school sophomore wearing a dorky green windbreaker was there to witness it all. He described it as the loudest and most rocking thing he had ever seen up close. Especially at the right time where the music swells and the audience goes into a frenzy. Paul was in the back of the auditorium at first, but somehow he made his way nearly to the front of the stage. Then suddenly, a random cute teenage girl gets on Paul's shoulders and starts (laughs) bouncing up in 
coming down. Oh, yeah. The whole crowd is moving and jumping with them to the music. And then someone passes a bottle to Paul. He takes a swig of it. He passes it back. He's jumping and he's moving to the music still with a cute girl still on his shoulders. There he is, man, right there in front of Ronnie Wood and Rod Stewart, 16-year-old virgin Paul Westerberg. <laughs> beads of sweat going down his dorky windbreaker. But that doesn't matter because he's in rock and roll heaven right now. And that song that was playing while he was grinning ear to ear during all of this was Miss Judy's Farm. <laughs> Fuck yeah! It's like sex! <laughs> So Paul's future is going to be music, yeah. right? Without a doubt. So Paul, he's reading every rock music magazine he can get his hands on, like Enemy, New Musical Express, and Cream, of course. He's studying all the bands, seeing what's out there. He and his friends play records for each other. That's actually how he found out about the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. His friend played him Anarchy in the UK, and Paul said, quote, I shat myself. <laughs> it's in the book. It's, honestly, for, for Paul, it struck him like Cupid's arrow, right? He thought, this is my music. It's simple yet impactful. And that's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. Why am I trying to perfect guitar solos? It doesn't have to be that fancy. Like rock and roll, as it turns out, it's not that complicated. No. It's all right there in the sound, the attitude, and the lyrics. And then I cue the oh I, I write and then I cue the song. <laughs> Sorry. I, I I'm reading my own notes. Cue the song. Cue the song. <laughs> First time I ever heard that, like I'd ever heard that tape, I've lost my fucking mind. Yeah. I was like, destroy passerby? What the fuck does destroy passerby mean? I want to destroy passerby. (laughs) (laughs) And so we did. (laughs) The thing is that like after hearing the Sex Pistols, like Paul Westerberg, he was supposed to graduate high school in 1977. And he said, quote, punk made me think, fuck this school shit. Fuck (laughs) everything. And he was not bluffing. No. <laughs> Just because that's the thing. I heard it in high school, too. But I was like, oh, I better finish up. You know, I got to go to college and all that. <laughs> Just months before Westerberg was set to graduate from high school, he just stopped going to classes and blew the whole thing off, forging his way ahead in the Minneapolis music scene. And t- But by the way, that was, remember kids, it's 1978. You can't do that now. Why not? <laughs> just do it. Fuck everything. You can say fuck everything if you feel like you don't really need to go to college. But graduate from high school. You're going to need a high school diploma. That's fu- Do whatever. Do whatever. In 100 years, we'll all be dead. I mean, Dude, Don't encourage kids <laughs> to drop out of high school. Let me finish. 
<laughs> in a hundred years, we'll all be dead, but a GED is forever. <laughs> now, of course, one might ask the question as to how a high school kid in Minneapolis was able to hear a Sex Pistols single in 1976, before the full-length Sex Pistols album had even been released in the UK, much less the United States. Well, the answer was an independent record store called Orfolk Jokopus, whose importance to the Minneapolis punk and indie scenes to come cannot be overstated. Mm-hmm. Now, even though it was quite the well-rounded record store, Orfolk became the go-to place in Minneapolis to pick up the latest punk singles and albums, no matter if they were American releases or UK imports. When the God Save the Queen single was released, Orfolk had it. When the Damned released Damn, Damn, Damned, Orfolk had it. And when the Ramones debut came out on Sire, Orfolk certainly had it. When bands like the Ramones, the Talking Heads, Blondie, or the B-52s came to town, they'd always swing by Orfolk because they knew that the reason why people were at their shows was because they'd heard those bands at Orfolk. But Orfolk wouldn't have been the legendary record store that it was without manager Peter Jesperson. Yes, he is responsible. Him and maybe a small handful of people. A couple other people. Yes, in, in the Twin Cities uh, music community are really responsible for bringing so much great music into kids' hands. Yeah. So Peter, he was 19 years old when he started working at Orfolk in 1973, not long after Orfolk first opened. Actually, yeah. they'd only been open like a couple months. And actually, I'm doing a lot of actually. <laughs> uh, before, it was called North North Country Music, but when a former air traffic controller named Vern, yes, no, I love this, <laughs> his name was Vern, he decided to buy a record store, he reopened it with a new name, Orfolk Jokobus. Okay, after, and what the fuck is it, what is that? It's named after his two favorite records. Okay. Or by Skip Spence, you know, the guy from uh, Jefferson Airplane. Right. And Folk Joke Opus <laughs> by Roy Harper, the, the British folk guy. Yeah, the British, yeah, Roy Harper that we all know and love. Yes. So everyone calls it Orfolk. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. I'm not detecting any sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like you said, what makes Orfolk so special is the fact that they carried imports. Yeah. And really hard to find, like, smaller labels. Yeah, not just the smaller labels, too. Like, they'd bring in, like, Beatles imports, you know, like, they were among the first places in Minneapolis to really carry the rarer Beatles shit, like in different mixes and all that sort of shit that you wouldn't get in the United States. Oh, yeah. No, it was very curated. Yeah. And Peter is ordering these like the, he's putting together the inventory for this. He, he he's ordering these straight from the UK, like the Beatles or the Sex Pistols. I, they land in New York City by boat. Probably. I don't know. <laughs> uh, they, they land by boat. Then they get shipped in UPS vans from there straight to the Midwest where kids are lining up around the block waiting waiting for the UPS guy. And this is a true story. They're lining up waiting for the UPS guy to deliver the boxes for them to open them up and then hand them out sex pistols, never mind the bollocks. Yeah. And you know, that's not that different from how, you know, a lot of blues and country came to England where, you know, kids would wait for the sailors to come into Liverpool to deliver all these like Buddy Holly records and Muddy Waters and all that shit. Like it's all the same during these days. It's so exciting. You got to live near a port city (laughs) from like, I don't know, before the internet until the beginning of mankind. <laughs> it really has been beneficial to you yeah. if you do that. Yeah. So Peter, as well as his staff, uh, he had many like Terry Katzman, of course, Andy Schwartz, all of them. They're handing out these amazing records, showing them about music from all over, not just New York City. They would turn the local kids into David Bowie, uh, New York Dolls, Patti Smith, Devo, The Stranglers, 10CC. Yeah, oh, <laughs> you your <know>? favorite. <laughs> and this, and, and like the Orfolk staff, including Peter Jesperson, like they would hold court and talk about music with real enthusiasm. They were always eager to show them like the latest 
coolest releases of a band that they like or they just heard about. You know, Peter even handed he handed the Sex Pistols record to Paul Westerberg's friend and said, you need to buy this, to which his friends showed his friends to Paul, who shot himself. <laughs> and that's how it all works. All comes full circle yes. with, a, with a fucking pile of shit on the floor. Peter was a mentor, a tastemaker. <laughs> People would ask, like, what are you listening to, Peter? And they would more often than not just pick up a record based on his recommendation. Yeah. Just by that. And that's what made him so, so important. And that's only one part of it. That's a t- like that's the thing. Yeah, Peter Jesperson, that is the probably his smallest contribution to the replacement story to come. Yeah, 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 we're going to get into it. Yeah. Now for a few years, Paul Westerberg played in semi-casual bands with other high school kids. Bands with names like Rain, Cunning Stunts, and Neighborhood Threat. Everyone was in a band called Cunning Stunts at one point. Oh. You know what it is, right? Cunning Stunts? Cunning Stunts. Cunts. It's Stunning Cunts. Stunning Cunts. Yeah. Oh, why did they just call it the Stunning Cunts? Oh, wait, he's dyslexic. Yeah. Good for you, Paul. Well, mostly these bands played covers, partly because that's what high school kids do and partly because that was the only way a band in Minneapolis could make money. Yes. I mean, or you're just hanging out. Mm -hmm. That's also a good place to hang out. And a lot of these kids, they're practicing in basements. Uh, Most of the Midwest bands were coming out of basements or maybe an occasional garage, but definitely basement bands. (laughs) Even back in the 60s, remember the Trashmen who were from Minneapolis? They started out in a basement. They were famous for the bird. Yeah, surfing bird. Yeah, surfing bird. I call it the bird. bird. (laughs) We did an entire episode on that song. I I named it the bird episode. No, it's a great it's a great episode check it out and uh so a lot of these kids in the 60s and then into in, the 70s and 80s uh they're meeting up in each other's basements and practicing and, and but it's all very casual right mm-hmm. they, they might just be passing a guitar around playing a couple songs they all like from like cream aerosmith beatles rush <laughs> rush <laughs> led zeppelin you know and they're all talking about it and, and handing each other records a lot of, the, of this is because they're in minnesota where the winters are long cold and very snowy and can be very lonely yes so they're finding ways to just there's just to do stuff there's not a lot of outdoor activities going on right mm-hmm. so these kids are finding ways to get all their teen energy out those raging hormones mm-hmm. <laughs> they need to be directed to something creative and a lot of these kids are just doing it for fun but other like Paul, he's going to start getting real serious about playing in bands, about writing original songs, and hopefully getting out of the basement and in public. You know, get some sun, Paul. Please get some sun. (laughs) Oh, yeah. All these kids need sun. But when one of the kids that Paul played with killed himself, a guy named John Zika that Paul very much looked up to, Paul's entire personality changed. He'd already been rebellious, but after Zika's death, Paul became, as he said, a little more of a fuck you type. The rebellion became an angry malaise of a kind. And as a result, Paul, the high school dropout, just took one dead-end job after another. Yeah, from like age 18 to like about 20, 21, uh, Paul was taking up a job here and there, mostly to appease his parents mm-hmm. who he was still living with and wondering they were just wondering what he's going to do with his future and also he had to also finance his future even if it was a long shot which was music you know because he didn't want to tell his parents mom dad I'm going to be a rock star. (laughs) He knew that's not going to sit well with them at all. Well, it's also financing in very short term ways. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His thing was definitely get a job, buy a new guitar, quit that job. Oh, crap, I need a new amp. (laughs) Get a job, buy that amp, quit that job. And then did I break that other guitar? Yeah. Get back to getting a job. (laughs) And jobs like working at a steel mill, uh, then as a janitor, that that job he kind of liked because he was cleaning offices downtown. Man. 
And yeah. it's after hours. I'm telling you, man, janitor is such an underrated job for a kid in his like early to mid 20s. I had a janitor job in my early to mid 20s. It was fucking awesome. It was the best shit job I ever had. I love being a janitor. Like I just walk around and listen to music all day or listen to, you know, early podcasts like hardcore history and shit like that. I learned so much during my janitor days. I encourage you kids become a janitor. Yes. Apply for that janitor job. And try not to be accused of murder if you happen to be at the wrong <laughs> place working the wrong hours just do your best other than that just keep that job that's not an insult i was never accused of murder I know. it sounds like you're saying you're trying to hint towards a time it's always when I was a, the janitor uh, okay. it's always the drifter well it's always you know? the janitor that's blamed first i'll tell you that yes <laughs> i'll tell you that from experience it is always the janitor that's blamed first when something goes wrong so paul <laughs> he he kind of enjoyed cleaning offices downtown it wasn't too much it wasn't back-breaking work mm-hmm. and this is after hours so he could play the radio at night like you said you can listen to music music while working and he would write set lists for whatever band he was currently in too because remember he's like playing in bands here and there and one of the offices he cleaned uh, was for a state senator oh, no yes. shit yes and being a kid with a janitor's job you know putting his feet up on the desk eating the power powder donuts getting it everywhere <laughs> I'll clean it later using his stationery to write new band set lists mm-hmm. like I love that like on the top it would say from the desk of the US Senator David Durenberger and underneath he'd write we're gonna get drunk Tonight. <laughs> yes, next, my brother's in jail. <laughs> That's what you do. That's what your day job. I've done it with my day job. We've all done it. Always take company time and stationery to Always. do your passion. Always. Always. All right. If you got time to lean, you got time to make your dreams come true. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And also, kids, like, just remember, like, yeah, write dumb, stupid songs when you're a kid. Like, I remember the band that I was in in college. Like, we had songs like, uh, what was one of them called? Uh, I've got all the smokes and bitches now. <laughs> <laughs> and just write, just write dumb shit. Just keep writing, keep writing. Because that's, I think, that was part. Paul Westerberg's, uh, one of his secrets, you know, and the reason why he was able to write so much and why he's one of the most prolific songwriters is because he was not afraid to just write the dumbest songs possible. He just wrote. He didn't think about what was cool or what was going to be taken seriously. He just fucking wrote because he wanted to make music no matter what. So just fucking write. Just do whatever. No, that's great advice. It's hard to do, but once you break through, it's really fun. Goddamn right. And also... Remember, jumpsuits are uh, very fashionable these days, the Dickies jumpsuits. So, yeah, that's another reason to become a janitor. I think I have one, but it's in Velour. But anyway, (laughs) no one needs to know about that. (laughs) Okay, so, I mean, like, Paul is not necessarily, like, just, he's not like a slacker, you know? He's spending his days... Well... Okay. (laughs) But he's also, he's also gaining an education on his own terms, I guess. He's spending his days reading at the public library. Everything from literature to history and, and music, of course. And he even read that Frank Sinatra swam laps in his private pool mm-hmm. uh, to build like lung power to sing. And since Paul was starting to get real interested in singing too, he'd walk to work from home or vice versa, which was about a four-mile walk. Uh, it was about an hour and a half to just gain also his lung strength as well, I mm-hmm. guess, to build that lung power and come up with ideas for fu- for his future in music and while doing that he'd hear yes yes yeah. I mean no he'd hear the band yes the band yes yes he'd come across this house blasting really loudly like a really loud fast and fast rendition of roundabout from the band yes mm-hmm. and after passing by that house once or twice Paul couldn't help but get curious and he decided to go and investigate for himself mm-hmm. so he crept up to the strange house always the janitor yeah <laughs> 
So he crept up to this strange house. He got on his hands and knees, tried to, you know, see through the basement window, you know, to find out where all that racket was coming from. And he saw, well, nothing, nothing. It, it was a bad angle. But if he was able to pan a little bit more to the right, mm-hmm. he would have been able to see three local dudes playing in a somewhat put together bed who called themselves Dog Breath. Yeah, Dog Breath. <laughs> Always with the dog. Always with these old bands. There's like Slaughter and the Dogs, Dog. There was actually a fuck. There was a local Minneapolis band. The only punk band in town for a while was just called The Dogs with two Gs. We're no dogs in space. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't even make that connection. Really? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I just don't detect sarcasm today. <laughs> no, I'm truly. Oh, I really? truly didn't make that connection. Wow. <laughs> you should go back to the public library. I should. I really should. Why? Why did I go to college? It was a waste of time and money. (laughs) Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, the guitarist and bass player for Dog Breath were two brothers named Bob and Tommy Stinson, and both of them would eventually play guitar and bass in The Replacements. Bob was the elder brother, born in 1958 in Waconia, Minnesota, to a teenage mother named Anita and a father who dropped Anita off at the hospital and got drunk with his brother-in-law for three days when Bob was born. Anita soon divorced Bob's father, and with Bob and Bob's younger sister Lonnie, Anita moved to San Diego. There, she met a highly abusive, alcoholic, degenerate gambler named Nick Griffin, who had proved to be a terror to Bob Stinson for a decade. But no matter how we treated Bob, Nick would still father a child with Anita in 1976. That child was little Tommy Stinson, and Tommy Stinson would play bass in his brother's band far sooner than was reasonable. Yes, but not out of the womb. <laughs> it's going to take some time. Yep. Eventually, this dysfunctional family moved to Florida, where Anita worked as a waitress, and Nick tried making a living by gambling on greyhounds. Dogs. <laughs> yeah, not-, not buses. Yeah. <laughs> it's just anything could turn into a family guy bit. All right. Uh, yes, the dogs, by the, the way, yeah. with two Gs. <laughs> Take out these greyhounds with three Gs. <laughs> It's in Florida that Bob got his first guitar after begging his mom to buy him one for Christmas. And by age 12, Bob was obsessed with learning every intricacy of a top 20 hit from prog rock band Yes called Roundabout, which would profoundly influence Bob's playing for the rest of his life.
that's prog rock. Yeah, it really no, that's yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yes that's yes. yes, yeah. I've been on the lighter side, but yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely prog rock. And maybe some of you people might be asking, what is prog rock? Mm-hmm. And I googled it. Because I was also not quite sure. Like, I know it when I see it. It's yeah. like the definition of irony. <laughs> that is prog rock. <laughs> but I or pornography. Yes, but yeah. I don't know how to explain it. So I Googled it and I, and I found some really great videos of people who, are, who looked very socially uncomfortable describing what prog rock is. <laughs> but it's short for progressive yeah. rock. <laughs> yeah. yeah, prog rock is the, that's, it's not what you'd call a, a genre love by the popular kids. No, not yeah. all the time. Not, yeah. not, not all, all the, time. the time. Not all the time. But, uh, but I mean, there's a reason why, you know, in Venture Brothers, there's a whole episode about how much Dr. Venture loves prog rock. <laughs> and he's the villain. You see? You see what I mean? So it's short for progressive rock. It, it means many things to many people. It, it could be any Anything simple from like, do you just like hard rock, but yearn for something more? Mm-hmm. Or it could also be more of a like a Wikipedia kind of entry of like, it's a subgenre of rock music that comes from the psychedelic rock era of the 60s that combines the forces of classical folk and jazz, you know, big on instrumentation, big mm-hmm. on composition and a lot of experimentation. Yes. Uh, it could be really as simple or as pretentious as you want it to be. It's not party music. It's definitely a, more of a listening experience. It's better with headphones. It's it's more of a solitary thing, which is probably why it's not very social. Yes. It's an acquired taste as well. But if you want to check it out, you know, King Crimson uh, comes to mind, which is actually, of they're, course. they're very great. Uh, Rush is amazing, by the way. <laughs> amazing. Rush really is amazing. I, I yes. will I, I just please go listen to 2112. It's such great. a fucking good album. Uh, there's ELP, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Uh, and, and I also had to reach out again uh, to another Midwest native, uh, Frank Conniff, TV's Frank from Mystery Science Theater 3K. Mm-hmm. He's also they used to do a show with Movie Sign. Absolutely. Movie mm-hmm. Sign with the Mads with mm-hmm. Trace Bill U. So TV's Frank, I asked him like about prog rock because I know he's a big Yes fan mm-hmm. and he helped me out a little bit. Uh, and he suggests like if you want to get into Yes, start with Fragile and when you want to kick prog rock into the next gear, then then try close to the edge, particularly the song Siberian Cat 2, which is all pretentious as fuck, but that's how he loves his prog rock. So check out the first five albums. Because when Rick Wakeman and Bill Brufford left, the band was never quite as great. So this is coming from Frank's mouth. To my ears and to my mouth. Oh, God, it's a whole thing. It sounds weird. But- I, personally, I love Rick Wakeman. Uh, but Rick Wakeman's fucking great. You know who else was a huge Rick Wakeman fan? David Chapman. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, that's that's the guy who killed John that's the guy Lennon. That, yes, that's the guy that killed John Lennon. All right. Lennon, yes. Well, you see what happens with prog rock fans? It can get dangerous. Yeah, it really can. Yeah, Mark David Chapman, <laughs> huge Rick Wakeman fan, huge. Um, but uh, but you know what's funny about this though is that you know the the replacements were known as to be like a bit punky in their early years, and but a lot of that early punk, you know, specifically like the Ramones, uh, was very much a reaction to prog rock. You know. It was very much a reaction to the, like uh, definitely Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yes. So like I you I can't I have this very uh, distinct memory. I don't know if it's correct or not of like Johnny Ramone going Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound actually very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So it's that whole thing of like Paul finding the simplicity in the Sex Pistols, and then Bob and, and Tommy just going crazy over prog rock, yeah. which is the, the other side of the rock spectrum. It really is. Now, Nick Griffin's abuse, that's Nick Griffin, that would be Bob Stinson's stepfather, or not even stepfather. They, his mother never actually married Nick Griffin. Right, uh, Tommy's really, father. Tommy's father, yeah. And Nick's abuse finally got to be too much. So Anita packed up her kids and her belongings, like just packed them up in a bunch of old-timey sea trunks. They fled in the middle of the night. 
and they ended up back in Minneapolis. Back in Minneapolis, Bob became a serious teenage delinquent, reckless, mostly drunk, and sometimes violent. He spent many of his teenage years in and out of mental health facilities, group homes, and boys' homes, including the infamous Red Wing Training School, which counts serial killer Carl Panzram amongst their alumni. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they have, like, a plaque or anything, or, like, a bust that you walk into. Still, I mean, it's the place where Carl Panzram said that he learned sexual sadism. You know, he was tortured there, you know, for he was sexually abused there. He was mentally and physically abused there. Red Wing Training School was not a place you wanted to end up. And these were the types of places that Bob Stinson was going to, even though Red Wing was said to have reformed by, you know, the mid 1970s. These were still rough fucking places for rough kids. Yeah, Bob had a really rough go at it. Really rough. But throughout it all, music kept bringing Bob back to the center, just like it had with Paul Westerberg. And when Bob turned 18, he was released back into the world on a satisfactory discharge, stating that he was at the very least no longer a criminal. Bringing along a friend named Robert Flemmel from his last facility, Bob moved back in with his family, only to find that his little brother Tommy was rapidly going down the same delinquent path Bob had chosen years earlier. Yeah, Tommy had already been arrested three times by the time he was 11 years old. Yep. And it was, I mean, it was just stuff from like breaking into abandoned houses and vandalizing them and stealing bikes, multiple bikes, yeah. <laughs> breaking them down in the friend's, uh, friend's garage. He, he ran a bicycle chop shop at the age of 10. For like a weekend. <laughs> it's not like he was committing like corporate fraud or like embezzlement. Or, I don't even know what, I mean, can anyone do that? I don't even know what that means. But yes, uh, he, Tommy was just doing a bunch of stuff. I, I think a lot of times these kids with Bob and Tommy, it's just they're, they're not getting a lot of direction. They're not, yeah. they're, they're getting parents who are too busy working or drinking or stuff like that. So they're just doing things that they think is okay, like breaking into a church and stealing a microphone. Yes. Which Tommy did when he was 11 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Anita tried her best, but she was also absent a lot, most of the time, in fact. Yes, being a a working mother, uh, a a lot of times a single mother, and also an alcoholic at many points in her life. Not saying that she did not love her kids, because I do believe that she really did. Very much so. She she talked a lot in Trouble Boys. Yeah, Yeah. she's a young, young mother. I don't think she knew what she had in store for having four kids no. for her you know for her mental sake and nothing but abusive men from the very beginning oh it's rough and so Tommy you know he's coming out of this uh, he's 11 years old and he he was this close to getting sent away to a detention center just like his older brother Bob but the uh, the judge at, in the courtroom decided to give him one more chance to straighten up and stay out of trouble and then it actually it worked because shortly after that Bob moved back home and once that whole weirdness of, oh, hey, I haven't really seen you in five years, Bob, Tommy mm-hmm. thing wore off, <laughs> they went back to being brothers. And Tommy, like many little brothers before him, got caught messing around in Bob's room one day mm-hmm. looking at Bob's guitars, particularly the bass guitar. And Bob, he wasn't angry. In fact, he showed Tommy a few things on the bass. And Tommy was like, that's cool, but, you know, my hands hurt, so I think I'm going to head out. Yep. And Bob said, the fuck you are. <laughs> Sit right back down. Get back here and practice. And he did, sometimes forcefully. Bob was doing, you know, he was doing the cool older brother thing by teaching his younger brother, like, Tommy how to play an instrument and everything, most likely because he was showing him, like, 
This is my escape. This was my survival from this hell of a childhood. And you will probably need this, too. Yeah. Well, it's it's given him that uh, it's giving him the gift before he really needed it, you know, because Bob used it after he he discovered it after he really needed it, you know, after he'd already fucked up much of his adolescence. So he's trying to make sure Tommy doesn't go down the same path. And he's like, this works. The Stinsons love music. Now you love music. (laughs) And that's very sweet of Bob. Right. It is. But. At the same time, Bob was like throwing a shoe at Tommy if he didn't get it right or pizza. He threw pizza at his younger brother or he once pushed a whole cabinet speaker on him trying to pin him to the floor. I mean, his tactics were very unorthodox. I would say wrong, (laughs) but not to excuse it all. It's fine, whatever. But Tommy was a snot nosed kid who would sometimes refuse to practice only unless he got bribed with candy bars and sodas. So Bob had to spend some money on this. Hey, man, learning how to play the bass is fucking rough. It rips your fingers up. It's very painful. With an 11-year-old hand. Yeah. Think of 11-year-old hands trying to get this done. Hell, they hurt my 12-year-old hands. <laughs> <laughs> and although Bob was helping Tommy out with the lessons, there was also a much more selfish reason. Bob needed a bass player. <laughs> like, if you're going to play prog rock, you're probably going to need like five or six other guys. You're trying to create a symphony. Yeah, prog bass players are fucking insane. Yes. They're really crazy. And and that's the thing. Like Bob. Okay, so Bob is playing guitar, right? Robert Flemmel, his roommate and buddy who's moving in with him, he's playing rhythm guitar. And so he's getting 11-year-old Tommy Stinson on bass. All they need right now is a drummer. Mm-hmm. And lucky for them, Bob's girlfriend, Andy, knew the perfect person for the job. Christopher Mars. Yeah. Yes. Christopher Mars was Andy's next door neighbor who would practice his drums in his bedroom, which faced her bedroom. So she figured, I'll set up an introduction. Chris, here's Bob. Bob, here's Chris. And then maybe Chris will move his drums into the Stinson's house. And then I won't ever have to hear that racket again. <laughs> and she did. And it worked. Yeah. And the problem, the, the funny thing about it is that like every time that the Stinsons, because the Stinsons were trying to get an, a drummer in there. Like they had got. They, they had did tra- audition a couple of people. They yes. auditioned a couple of guys and you know whereas before we'd always talked about how bands like especially like punk bands had a hard time getting drummers because nobody like fit nobody was like good enough but every drummer who came in to play with the Stinsons with Dog Breath like they were the ones who always rejected Dog breath. Like, they <laughs> yes. was like, I don't want it. Because I think they were kind of weirded out by a fucking tiny little 11-year-old kid playing bass. Well, it's a group but, of misfits. Yeah. And that's what's perfect, because mm-hmm. Christopher Mars fit in perfectly with them. He really did. He was a couple years younger than Bob, uh, so about 17 at this time. And, and Chris, yes, he's a drummer, but he's actually also a very supremely talented artist. No formal training, not even a painting class. He just had this, he said, he, I had this nervous habit of doodling in school, which soon became apparent that I was just gifted. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. is. Like, check he out is. his artwork uh, that he's been putting out in the last few decades. Uh, that's what he does full time. It is amazing. I love it. It's better than amazing. It really is. And also another fun thing about Chris Mars, he's, I, I had to put this in the script, yeah. he's distantly related to Franklin Clarence Mars, uh-huh. the founder of the Mars Candy Company, yes. who famously made Milky Way, Sneakers, right. yes. Twix, and my personal favorite, Musketeers <laughs> bars. Three Musketeers. And it's called course, Three Musketeers. Uh, well, they changed it to Musketeers. Oh, okay. Because you see, it used to be the three different flavors, and then and during the wartime, they just started manufacturing Nougat. their most... Yeah. I, I know, I know. I, 
I'll stop. So anyway, I don't, I don't know why you like. She was so adamant about keeping this in the script. It was like, no, no, no. We're going to talk about the Mars bar thing. Chris, Chris Mars is related to the Mars <laughs> dynasty. Uh-huh. That's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, somehow, but again, but he wasn't like. Can you do the Ron Howard? He wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't really. He's just like a cousin of a cousin of a cousin. And I would say that because Chris said he wrote to the Mars family once telling them, hey, my name is Christopher Mars. Isn't that something? (laughs) And then a while later, Chris got a package from them. uh, And inside there was like 10 boxes of M&Ms and probably a form letter that read, Dear valued customer, (laughs) congratulations on being the millionth person to claim heritage for the Mars company. Uh, So anyway, so Chris Mars, now it's over now. It's over now. Chris Mars is in with the group. He's in dog breath. Yeah, Chris Mars is related to the Mars family. Like, I'm related to Roger Miller, the guy who sounded like King of the Road, and you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. My uncle used to love me, but you died. Fucking amazing songs. It's a cousin of a cousin of a cousin. Yeah, I have an ancestor who may or may have not written Don Quixote. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't, you never told me that. Yes, I did. I thought I did. No, you never did. Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Saavedra mm-hmm. being my mother's maiden name. Yeah. Wow. So, I don't know. There is really no proof. <laughs> <laughs> there really isn't, except for like a letter. Anyway, so anyway, Chris Mars is in the group, he's not Carolina group. Hidalgo Saavedra. <laughs> Chris Mars, yeah. he, he's in Dog Breath. He even painted uh, the, the new band name Dog Breath on his kick drum, all in gold. Mm-hmm. And, and it was beautiful. And so, as we said before, when they practiced Dog Breath, they practiced loudly. Mm-hmm. The cops would come all the time and tell them, hey, you got to keep it down and please stop by 10 o'clock. And but sometimes they would just keep playing past 10 o'clock. So the cops would always come again and say, hey, we told you to shut that down, but at least you're getting better, which is always encouraging. It was just the sheer volume of it all. It would practically make the whole house shake. It was loud as fuck. And at least they were getting better. Yeah, at least they were getting better. (laughs) Yes, I know, because everyone would hear them for like ever. That's why Paul, when he kept walking back and forth, he was like, this is insane. Like, this is not coming out of anywhere else. Yeah. And so while Dog Breath wailed on and on in the Stinson basement, they attracted the attention of young Paul Westerberg, who is still hiding in the bushes, listening to Flimmel, Mars, and the Stensons play a sloppy breakneck version of Roundabout. Now, Paul had still been playing in bands and was at the time playing guitar in a group called Oat, which is currently the reigning champion for the worst fucking band name I've ever heard. Nah, there's Kudot and Boojang. <laughs> Remember? Glenn Danzig, Glenn Danzig, the first band. Yeah, that um, is true, but Oat is bad for a different reason. What about Humble Pie? Okay, Humble Pie is also... Like, none of these are bad. What I about Hoobastank? Would... <laughs> these are serious contenders. These are very serious contenders, but Oat is just for sheer blandness. No, I'm not going to go see Oat. I'm going to go down to, I'm going to go outside for a cigarette there and oat. <laughs> yeah, you're going to start smoking because of oat. Start smoking again. Again, that is, yes. Yeah, after quitting for seven years. <laughs> the problem with oat, though, was that Paul didn't see anywhere near the same fire and passion in his bandmates that he'd heard in punk songs like Anarchy in the UK or Neat, Neat, Neat. Nor did he see the same desperation that he saw in himself. See, Paul knew that the other dudes in Oat would eventually move on to college and look at their time with him as a fun lark of youth, while Paul was well aware that his only choices in life were musician or the handsomest janitor in Minneapolis. Oh, that's him. That's totally him. (laughs) Now, once Paul got more serious with his music career, a mutual friend introduced him to a guy Paul had seen here and there in the basements of Minneapolis named Chris Mars. Did you know that he's distantly... Oh, (laughs) shut up, Carolina. (laughs) 
As it happened, Chris invited Paul to come over and meet the rest of the guys in his band in late 1979. And lo and behold, Chris Mars brought Paul Westerberg to the same house that Paul had been squatting next to these many afternoons. <laughs> you make it seem like he was taking a shit and running away. <laughs> <laughs> like the poo-poo bed and bed and again. <laughs> well, not really, but it is just like a, like crouching like a little squirrel. Like not able to see anybody, does not know what anybody look, looks like, but just squatting. Now, the whole meeting began with the 70s underachiever custom of presenting a joint to the host. And once Bob saw that Paul was cool, they started (laughs) chatting. Paul, however, had heard a bass player, but had not yet seen one. And when he asked where the bass player was, Bob pointed toward a 12-year-old kid with a bowl haircut holding a gigantic bass guitar from Sears. It was Tommy. Tommy was so small that he'd been hidden behind an amp cabinet. Yes, you could actually pin him down with one. So we found out. (laughs) Now, from what Paul said, Dog Breath had the raw power that he'd been looking for. And since Paul was also looking for a band to lead, he thought that these guys might just be gullible enough to give him some leadership. The next time they hung out, Paul brought his guitar, his amp, and an armful of records that would help define the future sound of the replacements. Singles Going Steady by the Buzzcocks, the first New York Dolls album, and Live at Max's Kansas City by the Heartbreakers. Yes! So, playing four to five times a week, Paul and Bob developed a loose guitar weave that would stick throughout the replacement's career, and Chris's drumming style became less Keith Moon and more Paul Cook, drummer of the Sex Pistols. Ah. Tommy, meanwhile, was proving to be a natural and was able to play almost anything by ear and able to play it fast as fuck, securing the replacement's future half-ironic reputation as the best cover band in America. (laughs) But after weeks of playing together, the band realized they'd finally gelled when they were able to get to the end of Dave Edmonds' Trouble Boys without completely falling apart. This is them doing just that about a year later, live at 7th Street Entry in Minneapolis. Trouble Boys came in I'm in my mood 
the time he stints in on that bass. It's fucking amazing how fast he can play. They're pretty good. <laughs> They're all really good. And Chris Mars yeah. sounds fucking great. Bob Stinson sounds great. Paul Westerberg sounds fucking great. He's got that voice that everyone knows and loves. Like, yeah, that's about a year after they got together. Wow. It's fucking insane. Yes. They definitely know how to play. Yeah. And, and they're practicing almost every night, like you said, in the Stinson's old basement. Actually, the new basement. Yes. In their new house. Because around this time, Anita and the kids had to move out of their house because the owners wanted to move back in. Mm-hmm. So they were left without a place to live. So they're like, yeah, go ahead. Don't get pissy if all the neighbors hate you in the house because they've made all this thunderous ear-splitting music every night for like two years. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so like I said, they needed a place to live and they found one thanks to a regular at the Uptown Bar where Anita worked. This regular named Gary heard that she needed a house for her family, so he offered her his family's unoccupied house. It was a big space with six bedrooms and a very large unfinished basement that the guys could come and practice in every night they wanted to and Gary offered the whole place to her like at a discount. And so Anita like took it immediately. She was so grateful. She and the kids moved in so quick. She didn't even bother to ask. So why doesn't your family live here anymore? (laughs) (laughs) And that might have been because Gary's dad had hung himself in that same house. Actually in the basement from the pipes, right where the boys are going to be rehearsing now. (laughs) (laughs) But if you ask Anita or the guys, they really didn't care about the weird, sordid past. <laughs> it was a nice and cheap place to live. And, oh, yeah, it's haunted. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to ask them, oh, yeah, it's haunted as fuck. Very haunted. But it's cool. The ghost seems nice enough. What's funny is that, like, later on in the replacement's career, Gary became an insult to them. Like, where someone who was really fucking stupid, they would call them a Gary. Because they were like, have you ever met a smart Gary? No. Fucking Gary. What oh, God? He gave him a discount. <laughs> Are you talking about Gary Sr.? Don't you talk about the dead like that? Of course not. I don't think it had anything to do with that. But like Gary became an insult (laughs) in the replacements world much later on. (laughs) All right. And so and that house with the friendly ghost and all Mm -hmm. will uh, that will become an iconic Minneapolis rock music landmark. Mm -hmm. That would later be called the Let It Be House. Mm -hmm. Right on 2215 Bryant Avenue. The Impediments Headquarters. (laughs) Don't worry. The Impediments. Yes. Remember, they're, they're called the Impediments in about. 10 to 12 minutes, they're going to be the replacement's headquarters. Okay. Be patient. Right now, shit, right now they're dog breath. Dog breath, okay. (laughs) Okay, so now that the band is getting more serious, they realize they need a singer. Paul has been kind of yelling out words while they play in the basement, uh, especially since he's been secretly wanting to be a singer this whole time. Yeah, he's just kind of doing like Joey Ramone yelling, I'm a nasty, nasty, like stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nothing too serious, but he's secretly really wanted. Yes, exactly. But Bob wasn't satisfied with all this yelling. (laughs) He wanted a real vocalist. Remember, think Rush. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's a vocalist. Yeah, very much so. So sometimes they'd rehearse with this one guy, like this hippie guy named Stuart, but his high-pitched delivery didn't make fans out of Paul or Chris. Like no, they were just no, like, no. this is just not our thing. On the trouble, boys. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so Paul brought in his old bandmate from Oat, a singer. <laughs> I can't, you can't say it when you're Hispanic. You know yeah. what I mean? They can't oat. say Oat. <laughs> <laughs> no, just to, I know English isn't your first language. But oat. You, oh. <laughs> so Paul brought in his, uh, his, his old bandmate from this band. And he played in uh, <laughs> a singer named Tom Byron. By- Byron. <laughs> How do you say that one? Burn. 
burnt. The B Y R N E. Pero, pero con la Y. <laughs> when there's a Y. Okay, Tom Byrne. Oh, yeah. like Gabriel Byrne. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, or the or David Gabriel. Byrne. David Byrne, <laughs> also. Okay. All right, all right. So Paul brought in his old bandmate, a singer named Tom Byrne, to fill in, which Bob really liked. Yes, I want him to be our singer. And Bob was super excited. Like, Tom, this guy, he knows what he's doing. But Paul. He did what he felt he had to do. Mm -hmm. He told his friend Tom that the guys didn't want him, that they were going to go in a different direction. Mm -hmm. You know, that that old same <laughs> spiel I've gotten a million times. Well, but he said, like, man, I fucking love you, but the guys think you fucking suck. I'm sorry, man. Like, you're cool. I'm cool. But they're they're awful. Then he turns to Bob, Tommy and Chris <laughs> and he goes, Tom doesn't like you guys. He's not interested in dog breath. Not now. Not ever. G sorry, guys. Guess you're stuck with me and my yelling. <laughs> So now, finally, the original lineup is finally formed. Paul Westerberg playing guitar and lead vocals. Mm -hmm. Bob Stinson on lead guitar. His younger brother, Tommy Stinson, on bass. And Chris Mars on drums. Yep. Oh, and uh, Robert Flemmel also on guitar. Well, God, we forgot about him. Um, <laughs> he soon dropped off when he got hepatitis and he had to sit out for a few weeks. Uh, you know, uh, when you miss out a few weeks worth of practice, you come back and it's like a whole different band now. Yep. It's like, oh, we have a new house and a whole new name and everything. So Robert was out. Yeah. And also three guitars were just way too much for this thing that they were going to do. Yeah. So it was pretty obvious that Paul was ready and willing to lead this band. And with that new leadership comes a new name mm -hmm. for the band. Yeah, because Dog Breath's fucking awful. That's so 1979, man. <laughs> this is 1980. Yeah. We gotta think cooler and less seventh grade, <laughs> right? So Paul suggested the substitutes. Mm, not exactly. quite. No one yeah, liked it. No, no one not quite. It. Not quite. It's a, it's a Who song and that's cool and everything, but not quite. So Paul grabbed the dictionary and he started going through the pages. And then he stopped when he reached Impediment. Okay. Yes. Okay, it's better. An obstruction, a hindrance, a physical or psychological problem. I don't see how that's not us, guys. <laughs> and the guys agreed they were now the impediments. Yeah, which is a little bit better. It's a little bit better than dog breath. Now, once the impediments got going, Paul's songwriting output kicked into overdrive. So after years of reading music magazines, Paul got a sense of what critics thought was cool, and specifically what they liked about certain bands. And more than any others, Paul paid attention to what critics liked about the New York Dolls. Yes. Basically, Paul noticed that the Dolls' songs all had beginnings, middles, and ends without a lot of fucking around. They were simple and to the point, just like early rock and roll songs were. So, taking advice from an interview with deep purple guitarist Richie Blackmore that you're either a genius or a clever thief, Paul took a bunch of Johnny Thunder songs and rewrote them, notably stealing from All By Myself off the album Lamp. 
Yes. Do you have something to say about like this? Like a motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but do you have something to say about this song before we play it? It's about heroin. Okay. Oh, and also it was written by Walter Lohr and Jerry Nolan. <laughs> and Johnny Thunders didn't even sing in it. It's Walter. Yeah. Uh, he played guitar in it, though. Yeah, I wanted to say this because my wife well actually me well, before yes. we recorded this. I, I just wanted, I didn't want you to look stupid. <laughs> Sorry. But then it turns out that Paul was the one that was wrong all along. Exactly. Let's listen to it. It's, oh, it's fucking, you- it's the replacement. You're vindicated. (laughs) It's very much a replacement song. time that the band changed their name to The Impediments, their chemical intake undertook a significant change. Whereas before they'd been a band who smoked a lot of weed, they were now a band who drank a lot of beer. And when I say a lot of beer, I mean a fucking metric Midwestern ton of beer. Yes, let's look at the chart here. Oh no, that's just Last Podcast Network's own Ben Kissel! (laughs) Whoa! Whoa, thank you! Yes, he said this high, this amount. No, he's not here. Consequently, The Impediments' first gig playing at a teen rehab center in St. Paul ended in disaster. See, the center, called the Team House, had been putting on regular weekend rock concerts and sometimes bust in two or three hundred newly sober kids from other treatment centers to see these shows. That's cool. Yeah. It's cool that they did that, that they had that whole, you know, thing going on, that that whole, like, come check out cool stuff, like, kind of what, uh, uh, who did it? The Screamers did it and the Cramps did it, but that was a mental institution. That's different. <laughs> That's completely different. But I'm just talking yeah. about, like, just, just you know, one of those fun outdoor, what are they called? Field trips. Field trips. Yeah. Yes. Fun field trips. Oh. Yeah. I'm well, regressing every day. Every day. Well, I mean, Minneapolis is full of these, you know, for some reason or another. Oh, yeah. They, they have the great. The rehab centers are, yeah. are great. Yeah. They're, yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, they're very famous for that. Yeah, very much so. Now, the impediments were booked for two sets that night. And from what one attendee said about the first set, it was messy and not exactly good. And they couldn't figure out what they liked about them so much, but they were still somehow the best band they'd ever seen. But in between the first and second set, the band was caught drinking in the parking lot, which is a cardinal sin at these Sober as a Cat shows. There's one rule. Yeah. yeah. And you cannot keep that one rule with the helmet for an hour? Well, they were very nervous. Yeah, they were nervous yeah. and they were young and they thought, well, if I'm so nervous, I'm going to have a drink. And then yeah. that leads to being kicked out at mm-hmm. a sober dance. Yep, the band was therefore kicked out, and the guy who booked the shows exclaimed that the impediments will never work in this town again! (laughs) (laughs) So when Paul got a call from an old friend asking if the impediments would open for his band Resistor at a gig 40 miles west of Minneapolis, Paul said sure, but they'd already ruined the name of the impediments for good. Instead, they were going to be the replacements. Yes. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. it's it's still just as fucking, you know, low self-esteem as the impediments. It's still got to be something like, well, we're really not that fucking good. We're not yeah. good enough. Yeah, we got to be a problem. The sort of the kind is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. But hey, they got their first real gig. They did. Here we go. Okay, first of all, they need rides to get there because none of them know how to drive. Nope. And Bob's mom, Anita, is not fucking Francis McDormand. <laughs> you know, they, they can't rely on their parents. They need, they need to get friends to get this together. And so, uh, and also, by the way, this will be a problem for a long time since none of them could or would drive, yeah. which I respect very much so, by the way. You could drive if you wanted to. I just choose not to. <laughs> We I own a car. You could very much drive I it. I just don't have to want fucking drive that kind everywhere. of responsibility. <laughs> all right, fine. I couldn't hurt a fly. Put it all on your husband. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just your fucking chauffeur, aren't I? Aren't I? I'll just ask Maddie to drive me. <laughs> anyway. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, so the band, the new replacements, they get to the... <laughs> no, they're just the replacements. The they're new not, band, the replacements. The new, yeah, they're not like the new original replacements. Original famous replacements. Famous original replacements. <laughs> so the new band... The, repl- the new band name. The newly christened replacements. Thank you. <laughs> Them. <laughs> they get... So they get to Paradise Ballroom, and there's about 150 people there, and half of them were just local cowboys sitting in the back, staring ahead. Mm-hmm. Like, go ahead, put on your. Sh- I don't know. Can you do the? Th- can you do? Go ahead, put on your show, like in a really good, like gravelly Thomas Parks voice. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, put on your fucking show. Yes, but that's oh, but man, they're that's in Minnesota. Intimidating. But they're in Minnesota. Like, go ahead, put on your fucking show. I'm still scared. <laughs> All right. So, so the impediment. I mean, ah, the- jeez, uh, go ahead and put on your. Show. Show, huh? Oh, God, God, jeez. <laughs> so the replacements, Paul, Bob, Tommy, and Chris, they get on stage and they count off and each of them start playing a different song. Yep. We've been down this road before with different <laughs> bands. And according to Bob's book, you know, Trouble Boys that we read, it was total chaos. Bob is jumping off the PA and running around. Tommy is scared shitless. He's 12 years old at this point. He's yeah. like, what the hell am I doing here? Paul is also nervous, singing along to the loud cacophony that was their music. <laughs> they, I think it was a Slade cover or something they tried playing. They started with Slade. Yeah. They're like, these cowboys will sure love Slade. <laughs> oh, man. If there's one thing a cowboy loves, it's glam. <laughs> so, so the replacements, they got through a few songs until... They were naturally booed off stage. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty disappointing. 
but they weren't too discouraged. That just, you know, the thing that you say wasn't our crowd, man. That's it. Just yeah. wasn't our crowd. Oh, yeah. We, need we to, use that excuse all the time. I've done it a lot. Yes. <laughs> we need to find an audience who would be into this. But where do we go? And then the answer came to them from a friendly punk named Denny. Yeah, only known as Denny. Nobody knows his last name. Nobody really knows who he is. They just know some dude named Denny. Some guy just just kind of walked into their lives. I don't know. Yes, we don't know who he is. He, They don't even know. He might be a tra- time traveler, <laughs> a, a, a guardian angel. But whatever it was, Denny just happened to come across their house on Bryant Avenue while they were rehearsing one day. And Denny walked in and checked out their music. And then he said, you guys are fucking good, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck. You should make a tape and show it to the DJ at the Longhorn. Maybe he'll get you guys on the show. And then Bob, Tommy, Paul, and Chris look at each other and said, Whoa, was that positive feedback? <laughs> <laughs> and they looked back and he was gone. <laughs> Disappeared, never to be seen again. <laughs> and that DJ that Denny was mentioning was Peter Jesperson. Oh, I knew he'd be back. Yeah, Peter Jesperson from Orfolk Records. Yes, the manager there. He also DJed sets at Jay's Longhorns on the weekends because he really had his hand in every part of the rock music scene in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Like I said before, he was a tastemaker, an influencer. He would tell the owner or the booker of the Longhorn, like, this band is great, that band is awesome, book them, book them. And just like Orfolk, the Longhorn turned into a meeting ground for musicians and music fans and party people. It was the place for the new music scene of that time. Yeah. Now, before Jay's Longhorn, there really wasn't much of a punk scene in Minneapolis. Mostly early Minneapolis punk bands struggled through a dorky, very Midwestern cycle of rural ballrooms, small town bars, barn parties on flatbed trailers and high schools. In other words, the scene had not changed since Surfing Bird. It was the exact same route as the trash man. I have to say, after doing a lot of runs all over, uh, especially the Southwest and and, and stand-up comedy, it still hasn't changed very much. (laughs) A lot of those venues are very, very much the same. Yeah, There was, however, one place in downtown Minneapolis where bands could sometimes play. This venue had long been a jazz club until an escaped mental patient shot and killed the manager in the bathroom in 1975. But after the murder, another guy took over and changed this bar's name to the Blitz Bar. For a short period of time, people could see punk bands in the downstairs venue at the Blitz. And if they didn't particularly like the band, they could always go upstairs, where one could see the finest exotic dancers in the Midwest. Girls, 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 just the (laughs) finest girls. (laughs) But after the owner of the Blitz got murdered for owing a debt to some unspecified underworld figure. That's as vague as we can make it. (laughs) I was told I couldn't say that it was the mob. I didn't say that you couldn't say that. I'm just saying that... I was told to not make it too salacious. No, it it was just like, I don't want us to get all inside edition. I want us to be always honest and as accurate as possible. Of course, that's all the information we have. He was shot for owing a debt. All I said was that it sure as fuck wasn't the bank that went and shot him. (laughs) Which, by the way, that would be one tough town. (laughs) Really would be. But the the Blitz closed down, and the punk scene got uprooted just when it was starting to coalesce. Now, it soon became obvious that the punk scene in Minneapolis was not going to happen organically like it had in New York with places like CBGB in Max's Kansas City. So the youngsters in Minneapolis deliberately planned and strategized to build their own. We tried doing this in Lubbock when I was in college. We failed. 
these people succeeded. When punk exploded in 1977 with Patti Smith, The Damned, The Sex Pistols, and The Ramones, a local journalist named Andy Schwartz called a meeting at his house with local punk bands and Peter Jesperson from Orfolk, all to discuss how they could create their own, as they called it, mini Apple. It's pretty clever. It's very clever, yeah. Basically, this group figured that they needed a three-pronged attack. Orfolk would provide a place to buy the hippest records, and a label named Twin Tome, that we'll cover next episode, would release the music. All they needed was a clubhouse, like a CBGB or a Max's Kansas City, which brings us to Jay's Longhorn. That's right. It was a really fun place to hang out any night of the week. You could see great local acts like the Flaming O's, the Suburbs, NNB, Fingerprints, the Hipsters, and Curtis A. Heard right here on a single he recorded in 1978. I in the best way possible. I love it. I love Curtis A. Uh, He's a musical legend in the Twin Cities. He was playing with his band since even before they thought of having a punk rock scene. And it was the fact that Thumbs Up, the band that he was playing with at the time, they'd been playing for years and still hadn't gotten to the next level that Andy Schwartz and all of them decided we need to have a meeting. How is our best band still playing the same place three years later. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. So, uh, of course, six months after that meeting, Jay's Longhorn opens for business and books all the cool rocking bands in town. And suddenly, there's a place for 18 to 25-year-olds to hang out, to congregate, to develop friendships and relationships, and to be exposed to a bunch of great music. And through word of mouth, the venue becomes a huge hit just within just a few months. Yeah, It was like like you said, a Midwestern CBGBs. There you can go and see punk or new wave or, or alternative or, or a bluesy rock and roll band. And these same bands are coming back and hanging out on the nights that they're not playing. They're hanging out. They're eating free tacos. <laughs> this is just a place to also hang out in and not just playing. Lori Barbero from Babes of Toyland was a waitress there. Oh, shit. It's just, yes, it's a hangout spot. What I'm saying is... It's a hangout spot. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It's a clubhouse, like like Orfolk, right? Yeah. So like, so like, it, it's coming together a little bit. Like musician Daval, he's buying the latest Brian Eno EP, the Hell Seven yeah. Deadly Fins, and at the Orfolk, of course, he buys it. He goes home. He learns it. Then he plays it later that week at the Longhorn. You see that it's coming. The, the two of the three is coming together. Yep. The, they're, they're they're finding cool things and then they're getting to put it up and they're making their own fun thing. And it gave a chance for the locals to open for huge bands who'd come into town to play the Longhorn because their booker was relentless. Yeah. And because of that tenacity, they got Blondie, Elvis Costello, the Cramps, Dead Boys, Iggy Pop, the Buzzcocks played there, and the Clash stopped by to check them out yeah, yeah, that the cl- same night. They were just sitting there. <laughs> just even, There's free tacos? <laughs> it was amazing. 
amazing. Yeah, it sounds like one of the coolest places to hang out and like these like this like late 70s early 80s scene. It just sounds like the coolest one of the coolest places in America was in Minneapolis and it was all because these people willed it into existence. This, this was, is DIY at its best. It was a place to foster creativity mm-hmm. and it was done like you said by design. The local bands were given a platform, a place to perform their own material. They were actually encouraged to to be funny and audacious too, to stand out from the crowd. Finally, there was a place for kids who'd never had a chance otherwise. Bob Mould from Husker Du, when he moved to Minnesota from upstate New York after high school, he spent his first weekend at the Longhorn. And that was just because he wanted to check out this new band that he loved so much called the Suicide Commandos. Uh, all hail the Commandos. Yes. <laughs> Damn, I love the Minneapolis scene. Yes. It's just so cool. It's just so good. It's just all so good. I love that town. You know I go there all the time. Yeah. No, no, no. I love it too. Yeah. One of my yeah, favorite record stores in America is in St. Paul. Um, uh, fucking uh, Agarta Records is fucking You've been there too. I have been. And I have my electric fetus uh, hat that I wear every winter. I've been wearing it for years. Yeah. Once in a while in the street, I'll get a, hey. And I'm like, yeah, yourself, man. Yeah, yourself. Now, by this point, Paul Westerberg, one of the most prolific songwriters in rock history, had already penned about 30 tunes for The Replacements. Songs about looking for girls, drugs, jobs, or rides. Songs about authority figures or school. Songs about romantic crushes or unattainable women like waitresses or convenience store clerks. <laughs> I like that those are, to Paul, those are unattainable women. Hey, Why, why not settle for Margot Robbie, right? <laughs> or other uggos like Kate Upton. <laughs> Come on, no man, I know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, waitresses, convenience store clerks, the cute girl who like, works. What will be? What will be? Get off my back. My name's Carol. <laughs> I know what he's talking about. I I can relate to that. I know exactly how that is. And a few of these songs had already been recorded on a demo that had been laid down on a borrowed reel to reel. But Westerberg's vocals on that demo were delivered in a subpar, hesitant blues style. It wasn't really the replacements. Mm. And Bob's guitar, tracked separately, didn't have the same power. It sounded, well, it sounded like it was tracked separately. Therefore, when the demo was submitted to a local talent contest, the replacements got lost amidst almost 800 other entries. But while other bands might have been discouraged or might even given up altogether... These guys knew that music was, as Westerberg put it, their only road up and out. They had no skills. 
Bob was a cook. He not even a, was he a dishwasher by this no, point. No, he was a line cook. A line cook, yeah. And Paul, nothing wrong with that, by the way. I used to work the line. No, line cook, line cook's great, but you know that's but, as far as they're gonna go, right? Yeah. You know, and Paul was a janitor, and their thought was that they had to make it out in rock and roll, or they die trying. So undeterred, the band pushed ahead with another demo, but this time. Everyone was tracked live. The songs were sharper, more compact, more driving. And Paul used the naturally raspy voice that came to be such a trademark of the replacements. In other words, they fucking killed it. Oh, finally. Yes. So Paul took a used cassette tape from his sister's room. Oh, by the way, we, we got to do this. What? So you need a physical form of recording to get a song no, from the radio. People or from know the... what cassette tapes are. This, I'm about to talk at the end of this episode about a band of a couple of like 20 year old kids who put out a cassette tape. I'm, I'm, well, I'm talking about thousand years in the future. Uh, oh, OK. Right? Yeah. This... Oh, posterity. Uh, yes. No, a thousand yes. years in the future, we're going to be on the 85th cassette tape revival. I hope so. <laughs> and I hope No Dogs in Space is somewhere playing in <laughs> The other Saturn. Anyways, okay, so yeah. so so you we all know we're all in agreement. We're all in agreement right? to what cassette tapes okay. are. Yes. So Paul takes this used cassette tape from his sister's room. She had previously recorded a Santana album on it, but he's like, whatever, it's mine because you know sister brother stuff. Yeah. So then the replacements they record their four tracks onto sister Anne's cassette tape, <laughs> and then Paul put the cassette in his pocket and headed over to the Orfolk record store to give it to Peter Jesperson. Remember, he heard that Peter would help book the Longhorns live shows because that's what they needed. They needed a real gig. So Paul walks in and probably pretends to look at the postcard stand because <laughs> he's getting real nervous. I don't know. And actually, he did say anytime someone that looked cool walked in in the store, uh, he'd turn around and go back to looking at records and waiting <laughs> until they left. And then when he saw that, like, the whole coast was clear, he finally got the courage. He walked up to the counter and he said, here, listen to this. It's my band's demo. And Peter said, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah. Because he took it, but not graciously, <laughs> as Paul <laughs> describes it. It was awkward. Yeah. You, you know, it's always weird when you make it weird at your favorite record store. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> it's, yeah. But, you know, it, these are desperate times. Yeah. So Peter grabs the tape and he just chucks it in a shoebox mm -hmm. because he's a busy guy. Yeah, he gets like 10, 15 tapes a week. Right. Or maybe not a week, but a month at least. He's get, he gets a shitload. There's a lot of bands in Minneapolis at this point. And St. Paul. Totally Twin for, Cities. For, yes. He, Sorry, St. Paul. I don't mean to keep saying you don't matter, don't but you forget. do matter. You do matter. My favorite <laughs> record store in the Midwest is in your town. So finally, after Paul called a couple times being like, hey, have you checked out my band's demo? And Peter's like, no, I'll get to it soon. Peter finally finds a moment. Mm -hmm. He picks up the shoebox. He goes through the tapes. He finds one. He's about to put it in. He realizes, why does this, why does this say Santana? <laughs> Moonflower. Moonflower. In what appears to be a woman's cursive handwriting. <laughs> and then he turns it, oh. Oh, it just, you always have to flip it over. Mm -hmm. Oh, the replacements with four songs. Okay, let's check this out. A raise in the city. Oh, raised in the city. Raised. <laughs> wow, these kids really didn't finish high school. Okay, hit it.
Jesperson, he couldn't believe his ears. Yeah. He's like, this is nothing like all the tapes I've been set. He'd be getting a lot of Rolling Stones type of clones, but mm-hmm. but this, this and is, Stooges clones too. This is different. Yeah. This is fierce. It's a terrible recording, <laughs> but there's something here. Yeah. So Peter rewound the tape and played it again just to be sure. And he still loved it. This is outstanding. Everyone needs to hear this. So he called his girlfriend and several of his friends. And he's like, get over to the office right now and listen to this tape for me. I need to make sure it's as um, as amazing as I think it is. Mm-hmm. And they all came over and they heard it and said, yep, that's pretty good, actually. Santana is really taking a different turn these days. <laughs> but no, it's the replacement. Yeah. Well, that's they're like, that's a terrible name, too. Yeah. I know, but they're great. And Peter was over the moon. And that is an understatement. He knew that there was something remarkable on that tape. Yeah. And he couldn't wait to let them know. Now, the next afternoon, Paul swung by Orfolk to see if Jesperson had actually listened to the demo. But when Paul walked through the doors to hear Jesperson actually playing it in the store, Paul walked right out again because he was worried about what Jesperson's reaction actually was. Aww. He might have been play- like, because, you know, I get that where you might be thinking it's like, oh, man, he just fucking played it in the store to tell everyone how much we suck. Yeah, he's just laughing at us. Yeah. But that night, just as Paul was sitting down for dinner, Jesperson called and asked if the replacements were thinking to do an album or just a single. And after a long silence, Paul said... You think this shit's worth recording? I was just trying to get a gig opening for somebody. I, I don't know. Is this Kermit the Frog <laughs> hour? <laughs> do, do you know how, what Paul sounds like? He sounds like a Midwestern, like gruff kind of dude. Yeah. Like he's like just like yeah, this this Frank Sinatra drink. <laughs> That's when I ever get asked if I'm still on the sauce. <laughs> yeah, you said you mean this shit's worth recording. We were just trying to get a gig opening for somebody, <laughs> and that's where we'll pick back up. Woo! For part two of The Replacements. Oh, my God. I can't wait. This story just gets better and better. Yeah. No, no, no. We're, it's about to fucking kick off hard from here on out. Yes. It's, it, I love this story so much. And the music is just so good. Every album, to a point, is amazing. I agree with all of that. Yeah. I love this. And and so thank you guys for sticking around and, and for and for listening to us. Finally, we're finally back. It's 2022 and all that stuff. We have an Instagram, uh, No Dogs Pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we post fun things there and also a, a lot of updates as well. So if you want to yeah. check that out. When if, the new episodes are dropping yes. and all that type of stuff, No if Dogs Pod. arm in arm with the devil and Satan and all the <laughs> things that social media corporations, then you should uh, check us out there on Instagram. <laughs> of course. And we got t-shirts for sale. Of yes, course, on lastpodcastmerch.com. We got the uh, the original logo, the very cool classic one. And then mm-hmm. we also have a newer one, which is a very cool, like, he's like a punk dog kind of guy. Yeah. Rabbit dog. The rabbit dog shirt. Yeah, I the like rabbit that dog one. shirt. Yeah, I, both I wear that one. Yeah, at last, uh, just go to lastpodcastmerch.com and both of those are available. Very cool. And also, thanks for giving to our Patreon. Uh, we're very happy that we were able to start this Patreon. So that way, Marcus and I get to do a new show called New Arrivals every other week. And, and this is every other week, uninterrupted. <laughs> Constant, yeah. All the time, forever. All the time. Where we come in and we talk about just new music news and also like fun things. And, and also we do go into the series that we're talking about. So we're the replacements. So we're going to do a little part about like, it's kind of not like deleted scenes, but it's like extra stuff that like we really enjoyed and that kind of didn't like kind of make it on the show. Yeah, it's definitely behind the scenes stuff. Yes. Uh, yeah, you'll get to hear how episodes are put together, how series are put together, like the sorts of decisions that we make uh, as far as like what kind of music we play and so on and so forth. Uh, and, you know, we'll talk sometimes about new albums that we really like. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, we also on our Patreon are now going to have weekly playlists that are curated by either myself, Carolina, or uh, 
uh, some member of the No Dogs team. Our team also has fucking fantastic taste yes, in music. Yes, uh, And we're also going to be doing Q&A sessions uh, every other week uh, on uh, the No Dogs Patreon. Uh, and of course... You if- can ask anything, anything. Nothing's off the table, I swear. <laughs> and of course, if you give to the Patreon, you also get early access uh, to episodes. Uh, you get them as soon as they are edited and ready to go. You get them on the Patreon before anybody else does. That is true. So this episode, uh, it's been heard before. Yeah. Sorry, you, sorry you're, guys, you're if, coming in late now. Yeah, if you're if you're listening to the <laughs> if you're listening to this on the feed, you could have listened to this like three or four weeks ago. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if you haven't, then welcome and thank you so much yes. for your support. Really, really appreciate welcome everything. And thank you. And of course, there is a playlist for every single episode that uh, you can find on Spotify mm-hmm. and as well as YouTube in case you don't have Spotify. So you know you got you got your options there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, at the end of every single episode, we play a band that we really love, uh, but we like playing like bands that our listeners send in. If you got a band uh, or if you just do a weird project all on your own and you want your music heard, uh, you can send uh, a link to your stuff uh, to nodogsinspace at gmail.com and we will listen to it. I mean, we've had a lot since the Velvet Underground, a lot of fucking amazing, amazing submissions. Uh, I've found so many cool bands over the last few months. Uh, But the band that we're going to be playing today is Body Shop from Orlando. Orlando, Florida. The EP that we're going to be playing a song from is called Flesh World. It's a fun Twin Peaks <laughs> reference and I it's flesh it. with a three uh, and uh, it's released on Rip Records. Uh, and if you want, you can order the cassette like I did. I love this enough to uh, order a cassette from these guys. Uh, you can also download the EP uh, from riprecords.bandcamp.com. Uh, we, we're sure it's not RIP, right? Yeah, I okay. think. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's no P. I did not see any initials, so I'm going to say Rip Records. Cool. Okay. Uh, cool. Um, yeah, and you can also, while you're at the Rip Records uh, Bandcamp site, also pick up uh, Lick It Up by Duckus. Uh, that, uh, oh, yeah. 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 yeah, no, they're great. Yeah, they're great. We played them on an earlier episode. This label's fucking fantastic. They're my favorite indie label right now. Uh, so the song that we're going to be playing by Body Shop, uh, appropriately for the first Replacements episode, it's called Delinquent. Uh, <laughs> and that's uh, Delinquent, D-E-L-I-N. K-W-E-N-T. And this is Body Shop. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, Enjoy this band. Enjoy this song. And we shall see you next time for Replacements Part 2. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.